Facing a crisis in your life or business? Take the helm and steer yourself in the right direction. It's time to take charge and make things happen with your host, Lynn McLaughlin. Good day, everyone. Our guest today on Taking the Helm is going to, I think, help us reconsider some of our previous beliefs. Jeffrey Deskovic is an internationally recognized expert on wrongful convictions. He's the founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, which has freed 11 wrongfully convicted people in the United States and helped pass three laws. He's the co-owner of Recharge Beyond the Bars re-entry game, and he helps formerly incarcerated people reconnect with their family and friends. So what is Jeff's motivation? He spent 16 years in prison from age 17 to 32, an innocent man wrongly convicted for the murder and rape of a young woman. He has now been exonerated by DNA. Jeffrey, we have so much to talk about today, an advisory board, a council, the coalition group that you belong to, and the global implications because this is not only happening in the United States. I am just thrilled that you're with us today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Now let's go back. Let's go back to your, you know, you were 16, 17 years old. What was life like back then? So I kind of lived a double life in a way. I didn't really think of it that way, but there was my life after school and my life in school. So after school, I mean, I grew up in Peekskill, which is a middle-class, ethnically diverse place. There were a lot of students that lived in that apartment. There were a lot of kids that lived in that apartment complex and in the uh, surrounding areas. And, you know, I was one of the main kids. Like what I would suggest would usually be what we would do if we're going to ride bikes, play Monopoly, uh, play basketball, uh, go to the movies, etc. Uh, but that was kind of like after school. But in school, I was the I was that was a different set of kids. I wasn't quite as familiar with them, and so I was quiet and to myself. And I guess you might say I was kind of on the peripheral of the society uh, there. Oh, okay, I see. And uh, uh, you know, as I alluded to in the introduction, life changed dramatically for you when you were seventeen years old. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it. yeah, it did. It did. I mean, it changed when I was 16 when I was arrested, but then it got even worse at 17 because at that point I had lost, I had lost the trial. So at 16, I was, uh, uh, I was arrested for a murder and rape, which I did not commit. The victim was a classmate and two of my classes of freshman, one as a sophomore, knew her name. I knew, she knew mine. That was really the extent of it. I got on the police radar because the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them told the police that they might want to speak with me because I didn't quite fit in. Uh, so uh, that along with, that was my real, that was my first brush with that. I was a sensitive teenager and I had an emotional reaction. And as a result of that, uh, the police thought that that was suspicious. Oh. Now, fo now following that up, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to explain, to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator and I had the misfortune of matching that. So it was a reinforcing factor. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me, which half the time they speak with me as, as if I was a suspect. And the other half the time, they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. Mm. You know, they would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. 
to that along with my age was how they pulled the wool over my eyes. Um, and then also I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop uh, technique in which one, one of the officers was pretending like to be my friend. So I began to look up to him as a father figure. Eventually I agreed to take a polygraph test. They said, we have some new information in the file and we wanted to share that with you, but you have to take and pass a polygraph test first. So the next day, instead of going to the high school, I instead went to the, went to the, went to the police station for this test. Uh, because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother thought that I was in school, so they did not call around looking for me. They drove me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, the suburbs. They drove me across county lines, 40 minutes away, by car, to the town of Bruce, which is in Putnam County. So that meant I couldn't leave anymore on my own. On my own. I was totally dependent upon the police. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. But then I had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. Uh, but I figured, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. So from there, they put me in a small room, and they, he gave me countless cups of coffee. Uh, this polygraph, is, by the way, was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as law enforcement, so I had no idea he was. Then from the coffee, he attached me to the machine, and then he launched into his third-degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He, he, uh, he invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again, and he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Oh, towards my the, Yeah, towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. So that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were gonna harm me, but that he'd been holding them off and could not do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just do it. Just uh, tell them what they wanna hear and go home afterwards. You're not gonna be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long-term, just being concerned my safety in the moment, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew either loomed quite large in my mind. There was, I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. There was this push-pull dynamic in play, the possibility of harm and the, this false promise. So I made up a story based on the information which he had given me in the course of the interrogation. By the time everything was all said and done, I, I had uh, collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and uh, rape. That was at 16. Now, now Jeffrey, uh, there's just so many things I want to delve into here, but were you represented by a lawyer at any point in time? Did you have any legal representation? Not until I got arrested, but after I got okay. arrested, I did, yeah. But that would lead me to talk about the trial and how I got convicted. And, you know, I know that was kind of like a little bit of a long story in terms of how they arrested me. And the No, very important, trial. but a very important one to understand. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's pretty clear you didn't have legal representation. So, right. you know, as a 16 year old, any of us can go back to when we were 16 years old and, and the trauma, I mean, the trauma that it created for you and yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. So before the trial, the DNA test results came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen on the victim didn't match me. But uh, in order to explain that, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. And he suddenly claimed that he remembered that he forgot to, sh to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been sexually active. 
So that allowed the prosecutor to argue, well, she must have slept with someone else prior to you murdering and raping her. Taking it a step further, he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed that had this encounter with the victim. But he never tried to prove that. He never called him as a witness. He never, he never got a DNA test result uh, from him. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. He got away with that because the victim's family was not coming to court. They had no idea of what was being said about her in the, in the courtroom, that they were trashing her reputation in the furtherance of trying to wrongfully convict me. My public defender essentially did not defend me. So because this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of that same public defender's office, that prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. It prevented the defense from asking him for a sample. That's a never, clear conflict, is it not? That's a Yes, it is. It, yeah. yeah, it absolutely it's is. It's pretty yes. black and white. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Definitely. He never cross-examined this medical examiner. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to challenge the confession. He never called my alibi as a witness. And lastly, uh, you know, the interrogation was not videotaped or audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And so they left the threat and false promise out of their story. And my lawyer would not, you know, would you def my lawyer would not allow me to testify. You know, when you, when you defend the case with as a confession, you're supposed to answer that confession. You have to explain it. You have to disprove it, bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. And so the end result of all of that was that I was wrongfully convicted uh, of, of a murder and rape. I had turned 17 before the, just before the trial started. And, you know, because I had been charged as an adult and, and tried as an adult, I was sentenced as an adult. I was given a 15 to life sentence, despite the judge saying to me, maybe you are innocent. I literally have no words. And you and I have spoken before. So a lot of this right. isn't a surprise to me, but so you, you, you now are in jail. Yes. Let's talk about your attempt to appeal. So I went to, I, in, in all told, I lost seven appeals. So the first appeal was, went to the appellate division. My lawyer argued that I had a different attorney at this point, different agency. And this lawyer did a spectacular job. She argued 10 issues. She argued that my rights had been violated by the way the police questioned me. She argued that, uh, that I was innocent based on the DNA, that there was legally insufficient evidence, that the prosecution had proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that, that the verdict was, um, was, was against the weight of the evidence. Uh, she also challenged the judge's ruling when the judge allowed this polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph while banning my lawyer from asking him questions on the method he used to arrive at his opinion. All told, she uh, argued 10 issues. The court ruled that I was free to come and go as I wanted, so they ruled that the statements were voluntary. They wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, which I don't understand since the DNA didn't match me. And they got rid of all the rest of the issues in one sentence, writing that they had looked at the rest of the issues and found them to either be without merit or else not preserved for review. Uh, they ruled against me five, nothing on that. And it was all downhill from there. The re-argument motion was denied in one word, denied. Uh, New York State Court of Appeals declined to give me permission to appeal to them. So that's three. I lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure. So, so I lost based only on being four days late. I challenged that ruling at the Federal Court of Appeals and they, they uh, upheld the lower court ruling. 
I lost the re-argument motion there and the US Supreme Court declined to give me permission to appeal to them. So that's seven appeals, that's 11 years in now. I was just gonna ask, what was that length in time? So you were never, so in those appeals, did they, did they ever bring up the, like they didn't look at your alibi, you never got to share what your alibi is. None of those things were considered? Yeah, the alibi issue was never in front of the court because my lawyer never introduced that. The other issues that I mentioned were, I mean, the DNA issue was, you know, enough for me to win, you know, but I think it's pretty clear also the way I was interrogated. I mean, that yeah. I should have won based on that as well. So now, are you allowed, are you allowed, Jeffrey, to bring in new evidence? I think you would be. I can. Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yes, that, yes, that, that would be uh, through filing what's called a post-conviction motion. So okay. I'm going to get to that right now, actually. All right. Question. So once the appeals are over, the only way back in a court is if you can find, find new evidence that probably would have resulted in a different outcome. And so uh, I wrote letters for four years looking for help because I didn't have any money to hire an investigator or an attorney. Then I went to the parole board where because I uh, maintained my innocence and, and rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, I was denied parole. So I ultimately was exonerated through this post-conviction motion through new evidence because one of the letters that I sent out to a book author and care of the publishing company was instead sent to an investigator, Claudia Whitman. Okay. And she wrote me back right away. She believed in my innocence because I showed her the paperwork proving that the DNA didn't match to me. And then Claudia suggested that I write the Innocence Project again uh, to represent me and because uh, I had applied to them previously. And she lobbied them to take the case. She got other respected legal entities to lobby them. And then I also got lucky that one of the intake workers there, uh, Maggie Taylor, she presented my case uh, several times to the Innocence Project lawyers because the first two times they didn't want to take it and she presented it the third time they agreed to take the case. So getting their representation was the first key. Yeah. Second, second key was um, former Westchester DA Janine Pirro, who became DA after I was convicted, but before the first appeal was decided. So she hopes her office had fought all seven of the appeals and blocked further testing. She left office. And the third thing is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. Oh. Uh, so left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case, who was a school teacher and had two children. So not only did this horrific man rape and murder the person that you were accused of, of raping and murdering, right. he also let you sit in prison for 17 years. And 16, he also, yes. 16 mm -hmm. years, okay. Mm -hmm. And also killed another person because he wasn't convicted. That's right. It's horrific in so many levels. And I, I, with empathy for the victims in this as well. I mean, I can't imagine going through, you know, uh, you know, as a parent, anyone, siblings, friends, going through this initially, but then that many years later to find out that the wrong person was in jail all the time and the convict, shall we say, who should have been in jail, uh, killed again. There's just so many things wrong with all of this and you were the brunt of it. And Jeffrey, when I talk to you today, you, you don't seem angry. How, how is it that you've gotten to where you are today? Sure. So, well, that, because after my first, right around the end of the first week of freedom, you know, I was angry that first week and I felt like it nearly destroyed me. And so I, I decided that I didn't want to be angry that you know, I, I realized that I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. I felt like I lost so much as it was. 
So why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? And then if I was angry or bitter, it's not like I would be adversely impacting anybody. anybody. So the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take that energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do. Uh, so for about the first five years of freedom, I uh, became an individual advocate. I was speaking across the country. I became a columnist for a weekly paper. I was doing media interviews and I was regularly meeting with elected officials. I got a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. I got a master's degree from John Jay College. Uh, I did that and did that advocacy work while also struggling in many ways to reintegrate. I was released with nothing and I was always passed over for gainful employment. So I was at one point, I was a couple of weeks away from the homeless shelter. Uh, but, but I also had to deal with the psychological after effects, the right. stig- stigma, we're in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yeah, but you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Well, and, was, and, and the world changes in 16 years. And we t- you talk about yes. compensation. How do you, there's no compensation for losing that amount of time in your life ever. Uh, I, completely, I completely agree with you. The technology was different. C- cell phones, GPS, internet right. was different. Oh, just that alone. Cult- cultural, culture was different. Neighborhoods looked different. Different people mm-hmm. live in those neighborhoods as well. So I felt like I was in a parallel world that I didn't quite belong in. Uh, it was awkward when I'd meet up with my extended family, who would, most of whom never came to see me, and the few that did, it was very sporadic, so that was something else to overcome. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, I mean, the years that I was in prison, from May 17 to 32, it made, made reintegrating even more difficult because I had never before had a driver's license, I hadn't lived on my own, had never went shopping, had never wrote a check, never had a balance of budget, so all of that made everything particularly uh, difficult. Oh. My goodness. And in our previous conversation, you did say that there are some states that do not provide compensation for the wrongfully convicted. What happened to you? Sure. Yeah, there are 14 states that that do not. Pennsylvania is one of them, and I'm working there with other colleagues in the coalition group. Uh, Pennsylvania could happen to you. We're trying to build support to pass that. So I was compensated, but it took five years. And I, as I alluded to before, there was uh, it. Beyond it taking five years, I mean, there was no immediate help. I mean, I feel strongly that uh, housing, cost of living, mental health care, doctor, dental, access to public transportation, job training, job placement, class on technology, all of that should have been provided, uh, but was, was not. It was not. So you are now helping wrongfully convicted people reconnect with family and friends as well. Yes. So after five years, yes, I, I received some financial compensation. I used uh, some of the money. I used a million and a half dollars from that to start the Jeffrey Deskwood Foundation for Justice. And we've been able to help free 11 people that were wrongfully imprisoned. We helped pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction, uh, videotaping interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion. Then as part of the coalition group, if it happened to you, which I'm an advisory board member of and the foundation's part of, we were able to pass an additional five uh, laws, therefore, in New York, one in Pennsylvania. So we now have 10 cases that are active. We're doing policy work in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. But at some point, I became not satisfied with sitting in the front row of the courtroom. So I went to, I decided to go to law school. And I am, as I sit here and chat with you, I'm, a, I'm an attorney as, as, uh, as well. And, you know, our organization does, we free people, we do the policy changes, but we also um, help people to recover as well. 
you you know honestly when i'm listening to you and everything that we don't even talk about what your time in prison must have looked like and how horrific that must have been and what you're doing today and now an attorney at law and i just want to ask because i'm you know i i did the, i just googled it in canada let's talk about this being a global issue i just googled overturn convictions in canada and 18 names came up um you, you know and some of them were in jail for 28 30 years so this is a global global problem it isn't just happening in the united states so anyone who's listening, who has a family, a friend, or, or someone in prison themselves who thinks they're wrongfully convicted, what kind of a process do you use, Jeffrey, to, to say, yes, this is a case we're going to take on, or no, this isn't? That, that must be so challenging for you. It, really, it, is, it is challenging, and you know, there is a, there, it is a team approach, so, so I know that I'm a little too close to it. So I do have a team approach, and we build consensus and make, make decisions as, as a team. Uh, our approach is we ask ourselves two questions. Does the applicant have at least a plausible claim of innocence, and do we see a potential? Do we see a potential way to uh, win, win, win the case? So you know you have to. When you've been convicted, you don't have the presumption of innocence anymore. You're presumed guilty, actually, and okay. so the new evidence you find has to be such that it probably would have resulted in a in in a in a, in a different uh, in a different outcome. Uh, you are correct. It is a it is a uh, worldwide issue and. You know, hence I have the goal that one, you know, in the future, as we're able to uh, get public financial support, I'd love to expand the foundation and have a chapter in each state and ultimately in each country, because mm -hmm. I do see this as a worldwide, uh, as a worldwide issue, as you correctly point out. And I, I did look into Canada for the three reasons that you can appeal, and it's the verdict was unreasonable, there was an error of law or there was a miscarriage of justice. So it sounds very, very similar be between the two countries, although the process of who you appeal to is different, but. Right, and I do wanna point out also, you know, there is an entity in Canada that does wrongful conviction work uh, called Innocence, uh, Innocence Canada. Excellent. So Jeffrey, in addition to your foundation, what generic advice do you have in helping people find their new purpose um, after being released from jail, wrongfully convicted? Sure, and this formula, by the way, will will apply not just in terms of wrongful imprisonment, or, but but also just across the board, any kind of extreme life situation that you want to think of. Uh, so, first of all, uh, have a goal, have a realistic plan. You know, you should be able to look at it three or four different ways and say to yourself, "Yeah, this I can see how this plan would work." Because who wants to carry out a plan that you that you don't think can can work? Uh, be flexible. Uh, remember that the goal is the goal, the plan, the, the goal is the goal, the plan is not the goal. So if an unexpected door or opportunity that brings you closer to your goal opens, you know, you want to don't decline to walk through it just because it's not part of what you originally planned. Uh, work really, uh, no reason, no reasons why you can't accomplish something. Okay, now there might be a reason why something's more difficult, but uh, no, no excuses, no reasons why you can't do it. Uh, work really hard. You know, it's not likely that your, your goal or overcoming your adversity is going to just plop into your lap. You have to work for it. Put yourself in position for a miracle to happen, the door to open, somebody to help you. And never give up. And when you can't go on anymore, remember that that might be a key moment. You could be on the verge of a breakthrough. Uh, but because you quit, it won't, it won't, uh, it, it, it won't happen. So... What I usually say to my, I say that to myself, and so even though I can't keep going, I will go anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And once you get there, you got to reach back and help similarly situated people, and uh, do some work on the preventative side. And you know, I know that that applies across the board. So I mean, I've seen from fifty thousand feet away, I've seen people that 
uh, former prisoners that work with at-risk youth to prevent them from ending up in prison. I've seen people that used to be homeless that work with homeless populations and, you know, women that used to, were, used to be victims of domestic abuse. And I was at a fundraising event once as an audience member. This woman had been sexually trafficked and now she was sharing her story and was raising money for a nonprofit that she started that supports the work of freeing other people that are sexually trafficked. And, and it could be applied to someone that uh, as faces uh, discrimination, sexism, racism, debilitating illness as well, could have, and anything else you want to apply in there. And if you can do that, then it will lead you know, to your suffering counting for something. It'll be meaningful, healing, cathartic, and it'll help make the world a little bit better. And you can get to a point of seeing that as your mission in life. And I find inner peace that way. And I suspect that many others can do the same. Oh, thank you very much. And you know what? You just described many, many people that have been guests, having gone through many of those things on the podcast, Taking the Helm, and what they're doing to help uh, change people's lives now, as you are, Jeffrey. Now, I want to talk about your documentary. There's a documentary out that specifically to, to your case. Share a little bit about that with us. Sure. So uh, another Canadian crossover. Uh, so it was actually done by a Canadian, uh, Gia Wirtz, who's from, uh, was from, was originally from Calgary. And the Documentary is about my life post exoneration and the advocacy work that I that I do, rather than it being a deep dive into the legalistics uh, of of everything. And so the documentary has gotten into thirteen different documentary film festivals. It's won three different awards. And the thing I'm proudest most about that documentary, which again was produced and directed by uh, Chia Works, is that I utilized the platform that I had there to shed some attention to some of the non-innocence justice reform issues. I talked about things like people being uh, over, over sentenced. I mean, I, knew, I saw people in prison that were there for 20, 30 years for possessing a arbitrary a portion of drugs that made it a felony rather than misdemeanor. And some of those people had more time than people that had killed people or committed acts of violence, like assault, burglary, robbery. I, I discussed the terrible medical care in prison and, and elderly people in prison and how the medical system in the prison was particularly inept for dealing with the advanced geriatric needs of elderly population. I talked about how uh, people who were determined to be terminally ill by the time a decision is made on the compassionate release applications that they would often have just a day or two left before they pass or sometimes they would pass away and the decision would come after that. And I talk about how I would see people that had bachelor's degrees, associate's degrees, completed various vocational trades and therapeutic programs with solid disciplinary records and they would go to the parole board and they would be denied parole all in the name of what the offense was that they originally committed but how that's something that is not changeable, you know, and how that's just a complete abandonment of any idea of a belief in a second chance, a belief in uh, re rehabilitation. So uh, are, you, are you saying that one of the requirements of being approved for parole is admitting your guilt and taking responsibility? And if you're innocent and choosing not to do that, you're not going to get parole? Yeah, it's not an official condition, but, but by de facto, that's, what's, that's really what's happened. And that's why I was denied parole. So I am saying that, but I'm also saying that other people that where there is no question of guilt innocence, right, where they just, when they do go to the parole board and despite their being clearly rehabilitated, Understood. they often would be denied just, well, look at the charge was. But, you know, that's, if someone, you're a different person 10, 20, 30 years from 
when a crime happened, if that's what your your your, de your record demonstrates. Some then, some crimes are pretty uh, pretty heinous. Let's talk about serial murderers and serial rapists. Where I mean, I would hope that they would never get parole, um, because would, in would, my mind, if it's serial, then you've got a, you should have enough evidence to say that uh, I might be wrong. There may be cases of wrongful conviction, conviction, and I'd be interested to know more about that. But well, outside look, outside of the wrongful conviction aspect to it, in terms of just those people, those categories of people, I I agree with you. But I'm uh, that, but those are extreme examples. Yes, they but are. But there have been, uh, but there have been other people. For example, yeah, they killed people, but that was 10, 20 years, 25, 30 years. They already paid a price for that. So we're not talking about anybody getting away with anything. But if they are able to show that they're rehabilitated, right? There are people now that have been paroled from having committed violent crimes that contribute in very meaningful ways in society. Some of them work to injustice reform. Some of them work at prison reentry. Some of them work at diverting at rescue. Some are teachers. Some work in a nonprofit setting. So I think that if some, if it's determined that somebody could be safely released, and again, we're saying if it can be shown, right. if it could be shown, then I think that not only is it does it negatively impact on the parole applicant and their family, but also as a society, we lose out. If somebody that can be safely released is not, then we lose out on whatever contributions they could make uh, to the society. But then also from a tax point of view, rather than having somebody pay into the tax base as, as being employed, it's a tax drain to, to incarcerate them. Maybe just to sum up, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that once somebody has already paid for their crime, as determined by the judge in giving a sentence, once they've paid for the crime and they also are rehabilitated, then they should be released unless they have not been rehabilitated. If they're denied parole, it should be because it's been determined that they are not in fact rehabilitated, that it's not safe. But if that's not the issue, then let's not deny people because the, the, the charge originally was, was the violent charge. Because if we do that, then we're saying that we really don't believe in a second chance. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, then why are we bothering with therapeutic programs? Why are we bothering with vocational trades? Let's just drop all education and that's that. But most of us, myself included, I'm not, I'm not willing to just blanket across the board, categorically deny the ability of somebody to be rehabilitated. I think it needs to be on a case by case. And as such, the determining criteria should be, are they rehabilitated or they're not? Well, and it would be a sad, sad world if we said people couldn't get a second chance. And I mean, we could go into a whole other discussion about the programs that are in prison to help people heal, to help people rehabilitate. And there are a lot of great things happening with that as well in, in various places, not consistently. Can I just talk really briefly about capital sure. punishment? And I do look forward to watching the documentary, Jeffrey. Let's talk about capital punishment because you still have several states where that is still in place. Yes, so um, there, the coalition group, uh, California could happen to you, the Californian chapter. By the way, I'm active in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. Myself, the, the coalition's founder, Bill Bastic, and uh, one other person, we're the only three people that are in common to walk free. The rest of them are just citizens and stakeholders in that particular state. So jump. So we are working on getting uh, abolishing capital punishment in, in um, California. So here's my perspective on that. And just for context as well, wanted to share that uh, I did a lot of work with New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty in our, in our successful movement in 2006 and 2007 at capital punishment 
we warded off efforts at reinstating capital punishment in New York. And then in 2009, I was part of the successful effort in the state of Connecticut, which borders New York, and their successful effort at legislatively abolishing the death penalty. So here are my views with that background, with those credentials established. Uh, so firstly, maybe the biggest issue is that capital punishment definitely risks the execution of somebody innocent. So my appeals were over after 11 years. I was not exonerated till after, you know, till 16 years. So, you know, had I been sentenced to death, I would have, you know, very good chance I would have just been executed because that's what happens in a death penalty case. When the appeals are over, then people are executed. So it risks the execution of innocent. I just want to jump in because as a Canadian, sure. it's hard. It's hard for us to comprehend, right? A capital punishment mm -hmm. is just not something we have, we haven't had that in Canada for uh, I don't know how long, but well, Canada is a Canada and the UK are ahead of the US in that respect. Well, so the I mean, I mean as I said, I mean just googling the number of people who've been wrongfully con convicted in Canada, clear evidence, clear evidence to support what you're saying. Another ground as well is is that there's uh, there's racism within the death penalty. So. If a defendant is a minority, they are much more likely to get the death penalty than someone who's not. But I and also want to say- a lot of evidence to support that. Sure. And another thing is the, the classism aspect to it. I've, you know, someone who's, I've yet to see a wealthy person that's on death row. I'm not aware of that. Uh, another thing is that it's uh, very costly. So in New York, for example, from 1995 to 2004, we spent $200 million on a death penalty system. Nobody was executed. So it's a, it's, it's a big waste of money. People, some people in, in adopting kind of a crass line of reasoning think, well, why should we pay to keep them in prison? Wouldn't it just be cheaper to, cheaper to kill them? And no, it's actually not. It's is more expensive. If you have to go down that line of reasoning and thinking about the issue, let me just share that it is more expensive to have a capital case than versus not. Mm, interesting. I think that killing people who kill in order to show the killing is wrong is circular and it lowers the society down to the level of the, uh, of the murderer. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that- I agree with so you. For, so for all those reasons, I, I oppose capital punishment. As do I. Jeffrey, uh, you shared so much with us today. It's, it's horrific that you had to endure and suffer what you did for all of those years, but where it's taking you now and fighting for others, you've already gotten 10 people out, I believe, if I'm correct with that number. Yeah, 11, but yeah. 11 who were wrongfully convicted, and I believe you have 10 more that you're working on right yes, now. Yes, that's right. So you've, you've, you've gone through that whole application. These 10 people have a valid case. You're moving forward. So how can people contact you? Maybe they want to know what is your process? What are you doing? They want to support you financially or by sharing your messages. What can we do? Sure. So they can certainly, uh, there's my website, www.deskovic.org, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. Uh, there's an email form. People can email me that way. Uh, I also, uh, I'm reachable via social media. So I do have a public figure page on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. We do have, in terms of financial support, uh, we do have a crowdfunding page on the website, Patreon. Uh, so imagine for a minute if, uh, imagine if 25,000 people were willing to donate $3 or $5 on a recurring monthly basis. You know, that would enlarge in our budget, which would allow us to work on more cases and to pursue policy changes beyond the three states that we're doing. Uh, we talked about the 10 active cases. I want to point out there's another seven cases that are 
approved, but we don't have the capacity to move to move on right right now. From from the donating through the Patreon page to sharing word of mouth, social media. If the, if you work for a corporation and they do corporate philanthropy, just suggest us. That certainly would be uh, a way of uh, a, a way of helping as well. And, and you, oh. can see, you can see the information is on my background there as far as the patreon campaign and you know there is an amazon smile program which in, in which if people register the jeffrey deskovic foundation uh on uh, amazon as your charity of choice and uh amazon will donate a small percentage of your purchase without it without it increasing the cost to the consumer and, and i have to say as an author you know on amazon i didn't even know that that was an option right yeah a lot of people aren't aware of what of the amazon smile program but hence my uh one of the reasons amongst many, you know, in terms of, you know, why I do podcast interviews and other right. other interviews just to get the word out there uh, about this. But, you know, wrongful conviction, as we've talked about, is uh, is uh, definitely, unfortunately, uh, it is not, my case is not rare. And, uh, you know, per the National Registry of Exonerations, which catalogs exonerations in the U.S., just from 1989 forward, uh, there's been 2,839 exonerations. And remember, that's only those of us that have made it out. You know, there's many more people still on the inside. 19 people I did time with were exonerated either before me or after me. Uh, I, you know, there is a Wayne State University study that estimates 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted each year. So I think that the percentage of the prison population that's actually innocent is around 15 to 20 percent. It's just shocking in so many ways. Uh, the systemic deficiencies that lead to wrongful conviction are, generally speaking, really have not really been addressed legislatively, you know, just across the globe. I mean, so bad, bad lawyering, you know, public defenders are, you know, they're overworked, they have too large a caseload, and uh, it's not an even playing field between the prosecutor's office and the public defender's office. Uh, a lot of places, they don't videotape interrogations, they uh, best practices in terms of lineups, uh, keeping in mind that misidentifications cause wrongful convictions in 75% of the cases, uh, coerced false confessions have caused them in 25% of the cases, prosecutorial misconduct continues to uh, be an issue. We did pass a landmark bill in New York that uh, in the, the Commission for, um, for prosecutor, on Prosecutor Conduct Independent Oversight Board, but that's just in one state and that's not around, around the rest of the US and I'm unaware of a similar vehicle in uh, Canada or in other, uh, other countries. So that's uh, something that's not addressed either. And you know, we can't just sit back and be comfortable with respect to uh, the accuracy of the system because DNA exists, because DNA is only available in five to 12% of all serious felony cases. So mm -hmm. in, in the best case scenario, it's not an option in 88% of the cases. It's so complicated from every aspect. There's just more and more to research. I thank you, Jeffrey. What you have endured has taken you to where you are today as an advocate for others. And I know that wrongfully convicted people, their families and friends will want to be reaching out to you. And I thank you for joining us today on Taking the Helm. Thank you very much for sharing your platform. It was a pleasure coming on the show. Thank All right, you. do take care. Now, we always share podcast notes with key clips, key pieces of information for every single episode and resource links. So you can find our guests like Jeffrey, what's their website and how to contact them to gather more information. 
We hope you'll like and follow. And next week, we will be welcoming Terry Kozlowski. She is the podcast host of Soul Solutions and an author. Stay healthy and safe, everyone. We'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening. To learn more from people who are steering in the right direction, go to lynnmclaughlin.com and search the archives of every interview or subscribe to this podcast feed. A new episode is published every Wednesday.